and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 70, recorded on September 8th, 2018. I'm Joe. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Thank you very much for joining me again while the boss is still away. He's back soon, don't worry. But uh, let's get straight on with it and talk about GNOME 3.30 that's being released. I understand that you've actually managed to get this going on Arch. Yes, of course. It's already available in testing. I'm sure it'll be released into the main repositories sometime very soon. Until then, you can go install it if you want or go install it on some of the other places that have it available. If you like GNOME already, it's just more of the same stuff you already love. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to try this out because I'm not going to the lengths of installing Arch, even Antigas, no, thank you very much. But uh, what I've done traditionally is download the live CD, which was based on Debian, and previous releases had that, but there wasn't one for this. So unfortunately, it's just screenshots and descriptions for me. But uh, it's a fairly big deal. They, they talk about it being six months of hard work and uh, nearly 25,000 changes by over 800 contributors. So it's a fairly big deal. Absolutely. One of the things I'm really excited about is the new Thunderbolt panel to manage devices, and it dynamically shows hardware. I mean, it'll just show you stuff when you need to know it, and it's not there when you don't. Super streamlined, and I don't know about you, Joe, but I have more and more Thunderbolt peripherals all the time. I don't think I have any Thunderbolt peripherals. Well, you're behind the times, Joe. Come on now. I know. I need to get get myself uh, sorted with that. But one thing I noticed about this release announcement, you think of GNOME and you think about free software rather than open source. You think of GNU and, you know, copyleft and very much the freedom side of things. And you don't necessarily associate that with pragmatism. But Boxes, which is their virtual machine application, uh, can now connect to remote Windows servers using RDP, which, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all free software that's running it, but it shows a real kind of pragmatic approach there, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's probably a real-world use case people have, and it's not directly related to running you know, VMs, open-source or free software VMs on your local workstation whatsoever. But it might be one of those helpful tools that means you can run free software on your workstation and still do a lot of your day job. Another thing I noticed is they've got a podcast app now. And in the screenshot for this, I noticed a few podcasts that I recognized. Late Night Linux, hmm, I think that's quite good. Ubuntu Podcast, that's not bad. Destination Linux. Uh, But no Jupyter Broadcasting stuff. What's going on, guys? I am confused and outraged, but I'm also a little excited about this new app. Do you listen to many podcasts on your um, desktop? Because for me, it's very much a phone-based activity for me. I would say it's about half and half. Uh, I also end up playing a lot of podcasts through my TV slash sound system, but I control that primarily through my desktop. Phone is really only used in the car. Okay, fair enough. It's good to have it baked right into the desktop, though, so you know that you're going to have proper integration with like the volume control and um, you know skipping tracks and everything. So, yeah, I could see myself using this if I was using GNOME, definitely. Right, I don't expect it to be the most full-featured podcast client or anything close to it, but if you just want something that simple, works, and makes it easy right after installation to get going and start listening again to your favorite shows, this is a hit. And another thing, even more games. Games, the retro gaming application. I can't say I have much time for that these days, but uh, what about you? Are you tempted by this? Yes, I am. It looks pretty neat and there's the flat pack bundle now includes four more emulator cores so there's even a larger collection than they had before which is already pretty significant this is about the only gaming i do have time for some of these are classics that many of us have been playing for years and it's great that again you know you think about free software on the gnome desktop but this is another 
pragmatic use case. Maybe not for business applications, but for that all-important leisure time. Well, you mentioned Flatpak there, and we talked a few episodes ago about Flatpak reaching 1.0. And of course, that is in this version of GNOME. So you've got proper, stable Flatpaks now. It's a first-class citizen. It's about time. I think there's a lot of us in the community that's been playing with Flatpaks, but this is a milestone release, and it means it's going to be a significant part of future desktops to come. What about stability then? GNOME, one of the criticisms that I hear often leveled at it is that it tends to crash quite a lot. Um, Any improvements there that you've noticed? You know, I really haven't used it enough to see that. Uh, At least on my simple systems, you know, not anything I'm using as a desktop replacement or a real workstation powerhouse. GNOME's been rock solid for me. So I I think it's really only when you stress it out at at workloads maybe they're not really thinking of or are a little, unfortunately, beyond the architecture at this point that I've seen problems. And I just haven't evaluated 3.30 on that type of system yet. Uh, I remember the OBS machine crashing quite a lot in the studio. I suppose that's an example of stressing it quite a lot. So, um, yeah, it'd be good to see if this has become less crashy because that does seem to be the primary criticism that people level at it. And it's absolutely a feature you need in a a desktop you're going to use for anything serious. Well, any serious web browsing you're going to do, surely you're going to use the Tor browser. Well, of course. I mean, I don't want people spying on what I'm doing on the internet, Joe. You, you don't want to see that. <laughs> so yeah, Tor Browser 8.0 has been released, the first stable release based on Firefox 60 ESR. And I've tried this out, and it is actually an improvement over the previous version, I must say. They talk a lot about their new onboarding experience. Did you go through that? I did, and that's what really impressed me with it, because there has been a bit of a barrier to entry, because okay, I understand how it all works with the onion routing and, you know, I understand about the relays and everything, but the average person who just wants to browse privately might not necessarily know that. And it lays it out in really clear terms about what exactly is happening in this kind of first run wizard. And you kind of go through it step by step. And so, yes, I think that they are right to put that front and center in this release announcement. It goes a long way to some of their goals, right, and making this sort of technology available for for anyone, not just computer experts. Well, yeah, and to that end, they've improved the language support as well. They've added uh, Catalan, Irish, Indonesian, Icelandic, Norwegian, Danish, Hebrew, Swedish, and traditional Chinese. They already had a fair few languages, so it's good to see them expanding that. An admirable goal, for sure. Now, it's not all roses here. WebGL is broken, for instance, and there are some rumors there's some problems if you're using Mac OS. So make sure you go try maybe the latest alpha they've got with those issues fixed. What's Mac OS, Wes? I wouldn't understand about that sort of thing. But the WebGL thing, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? You know, it just might mean any sort of problem like that is one use case where you have to go explore another option. Either you're setting up Tor manually, which takes a lot more work and knowledge, or you're just using a less secure and anonymous browser, either way, it's not something you probably want to do. Hopefully they can get that fixed in an upcoming release. Now, they've done a lot with the onboarding, and they've made this a very slick experience, except for when you actually try and browse the web with it. And that's not their fault at all. They've done everything they can. But the problem is that a lot of websites don't want you to be anonymous. They don't want you to use Tor. And so they make it almost impossible to actually interact with their sites. You have these endless capture loops. I, mean, I, I tried with one website, and it just kept going round and round, wanting me to do buses and traffic lights, and just would not let me do what I wanted to do. And it's not Tor's fault. It's the rest of the web, but that doesn't make it any more usable on a day-to-day basis. 
That's disappointing. I know Cloudflare in particular is yep. a company people are often upset about for those horrible captures. Unfortunately, yes, that's just the that is the real world. But if they can't solve that problem, they've gone a long way to solving a lot of others. And it's getting to the point I I could actually recommend this to some people out there and think that they could actually use it without me having to hold their hand through the entire process. Oh, definitely, yeah. And there are certainly some websites which work absolutely perfectly with it. Uh, I tried out, you know, the, the podcast sites of the various shows I'm on, and you can play those episodes, no problem. But it's just the kind of more complicated interactive sites that want to scrape your data that are not going to work. And, well, it's not a surprise, is it? But they've also, the Tor project, released an alpha of a Tor browser for Android, which is available on the Play Store, and you can download an APK directly. When we recorded this, it didn't seem to be available on FDroid, hopefully soon. But you should know that this is really just a rebranding and a bringing in-house of the project known as Orfox, which is built from the same source code as the main Tor browser, which is, of course, itself based on Firefox. That project, Orfox, has been developed by the software collective The Guardian Project. Now that you know we've got the official version coming out in alpha, well, Orfox is kind of winding down in the future, just look for the Tor browser itself. Yeah, I think that's going to make it much simpler because I have looked for the Tor browser before and found this Orfox thing and thought, mm, do I trust this? And, you know, if it's coming from the Tor project directly, it's called the Tor browser. I think it just clears up any confusion there and just makes it, again, an easier onboarding experience. Yeah, absolutely. The Android app in this case, also features some tracker blocking tools to help just improve isolation from every website that you visit. So that's a nice tip. Yeah, and it works in very much the same way as Firefox on Android because, well, that's what it's based on. So if you're used to using Firefox, then it's not a huge transition to use a Tor browser. Exactly. Now, to actually connect to the Tor network with the Tor browser, you do need one more application, and that's the Guardian Project's Orbot, which actually connects you to the Tor network and enables all of those awesome features. That sounds like a lot, but don't worry. Tor Project's already working on bringing that functionality into the new browser app. Look for that sometime in the future. Well, sometime in the future, we're not even going to be using Android, are we? We're going to be using PureOS on the Librem 5. Oh, I certainly hope so. Unfortunately, there's some news that, well, we might have to wait a little bit longer. Yeah, they had originally planned to ship this phone in January of 2019, but now it looks like it's going to be April, or at least that's what they're estimating at the moment. And uh, they say with all the advancements Purism is making with hardware, software, development kits and services, during testing, two silicon bugs were discovered in the Librem 5 CPU that affect power management and power consumption. And so, three months delay in production, unfortunately. But at least they're being honest about this and are being realistic. And they're trying to achieve some goals that really no one else is working that that actively on right now. So the supply chains aren't optimized for it. There's a lot of gotchas that are happening. And, of course, sort of in the middle of this, there was a bit of a system-on-a-chip shift to use a newer version. There's some problems there. It sounds like if you use this with the current flaws, your phone would be dead in about an hour's worth of use. I don't know about you, Joe, that's not really going to make it happen for me in the real world. No, unfortunately not. Um, so they, they did a press release about this, which kind of buried the lead, I think. Um, and they were kind of talking about how great it is and everything. But there is uh, a link within that press release to a more technical blog post. 
And in that, they explain why they decided to move from the original IMX6 to the IMX8. And they talk about it being 64-bit with more GPUs and lower power consumption and just generally being a much better system on a chip. But in deciding to move to that rather than the IMX6, which they'd kind of based their plans on, they had to do some QA and testing. And sure enough, that brought up this issue about the power management. You know, it does seem like they're doing a, a pretty thorough job of both being transparent and being realistic. Uh, you know, some of this, it might happen earlier, but they just needed a hard date internally to plan around. I can certainly understand that. Plus, they're is the the normal sort of Western world holiday season coming up and Chinese New Year. There's a lot of time that can just cause supply problems. So aiming for sometime in the spring of next year seems like a doable goal. And they say that they're going to start shipping the dev kits in October, but they do caveat that with barring any unforeseen issues. Now, that is four months behind the original schedule because thanks to archive.org, I saw the original crowdfunding page when there was only $1,000 being pledged of the $2 million I think they got. So it was a very early snapshot. And it says on that that the dev kits will be shipping in June. And, well, June has long come and gone. And so now they're saying October. But they talk about in this blog post that it's going to be on schedule, these dev kits. So they're obviously talking about a revised schedule that it's now uh, sticking to. But... They also say that the dev kits will ship with this hardware bug because the dev kits are not designed to be run off batteries. They're designed to be plugged in, run off the main, so it doesn't matter that there are power management issues. So that does make it seem more realistic that we'll see them in October because October's not very long, is it? No, that's coming up. I mean, that's just next month. But that would be a good way to get that pipeline going, get developers actually working on you know testing, building, making sure all the software is going to run really well once there's actual shippable units. Although, you know, there is another bit of a red flag in here. And uh, that is, they say, the phone design schematics are pretty much complete. Pretty much complete. And we've been busy focusing on putting the device together. There are some missing pieces like the modem that needs to be incorporated. But other than that, there are currently no show-stopping issues in regards to manufacturing the phone. Uh, really? The modem's probably the most important, right? That's the whole thing? Yeah. And just even the case, if you don't know exactly what components are going where and you are still finalizing it, then surely they can't be ready to to fab the cases yet, which... It, okay, it's a fairly minor part of it, but you would hope that they would have that ready at this stage. I just hope that they get it together soon because we really need this. And, you know, we've been following this on this show on, on Linux Unplugged, on, you know, the whole Linux community has been following this because we just really want this to happen. But it's just so difficult, isn't it? The last great free software phone hope. It is really hard. It is worth doing. And I guess we also have to make sure we manage our expectations. You know, this really this is not going to be like an iPhone right out of the gate. But if we can get to the point of a, a usable phone you can use in your everyday life and respects a lot of the freedoms and philosophies that we hold dear, that would be a game changer. Well, we'll definitely keep reporting on this one right up until it gets released and beyond, whether that is indeed in April next year or whether it gets pushed back again, we'll have to see. But going back to Android, I saw this week that CompuLab have announced their device called Wild, which is Wi-Fi indoor location device. And this is the first Wi-Fi RTT access point 
that allows for Wi-Fi indoor location detection and tracking, as long as you've got an Android 9 smartphone. Now, uh, Wi-Fi RTT is round-trip time. This is some seriously interesting technology. You know, it, at first it sounded a little creepy to me, but you can imagine a ton of real-world use cases. I especially see this being used at really large campuses or even just middle-sized buildings where you have a large number of APs to do triangulation with and where you might need some assistance navigating or it could just be useful to know where people are, how to get them, and then perhaps even also navigating autonomous devices within a building like that. I don't know when the last time you visited a large hospital was, but that is a nightmare trying to find the right place. And being able to triangulate your location and get turn-by-turn directions would be amazing for that. Now, this Wi-Fi round-trip time is really interesting. It's such a simple concept. It's just the time it takes for an access point to ping your device and back. But then if you have at least three of them, you can triangulate where that person is down to apparently under 0.5 meters, which I think is about a foot and a half. It's really impressive and is kind of an ingenious use of information we already had available. And with just honestly some high school math, you can put this all together if you have all that available to you. Plus, there's been some design with security in mind. So the AP doesn't get to know that location, right? Your phone can infer it through the protocol 802.11mc, which is the Wi-Fi RTT spec but you don't have to worry that everyone else on the network is also spying on you. So this particular bit of hardware is familiar to me. When I saw the the photo of it, I thought, hang on, that looks familiar. And sure enough, it's the same hardware as the Mintbox Mini 2, which is uh, a little fanless um, PC, basically, um, passively called, seems ideal for this purpose. And they talk about it, it's running the latest GNU slash Linux Debian, including KDE and standard package management. I don't know why you'd need a GUI on this, but hey, who cares? KDE is nice. And they also say that their drivers and utilities will be open source. Now, there's no mention of where that code actually is and what license it is. So I'm a little bit skeptical about that. But if they do deliver on their promise of open sourcing that, this is really great because If you're going to have this kind of tracking, then it needs to all be open source. You can't have proprietary stuff in there because then nefarious things can happen. I would be much more comfortable using a system like this, knowing that it was open source, knowing that we can audit the code, knowing that it's not just going to get sold that data. Yeah, using a a public specification, open source implementations dominating the market, that's a world I can get behind and actually trust that it might not be abused. And this is not ridiculously expensive either. They talk about it being $175 for a bare-bone unit if you order in volume. And let's face it, to do this, you're going to have to order in volume because there's no point in a small place. You're going to need 20 or 30 of these at least to make it worthwhile. Right, you're not putting this in your house. You're putting it in a hospital or a, a large tech organization campus or an office building. Yeah, or a museum or something like that. And for $175 per access point, I mean, that's pretty competitive, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's enterprise access points that already go for a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm skeptical at this point. I do want to see that they follow through on um, publishing the source code, but this is definitely one to watch. Now, one that I was watching for not very long at all was spec being introduced into the kernel, which came in in 4.17. But now it looks like in 4.20, it's going to be removed already. 
This is an unusual case, and there's really a large number of ways to read this story. Google had been pushing for the NSA's spec algorithm for use on some of its lower-end mobile phones that just didn't have hardware implementations for things like AES, so they wanted a faster, but also at a cost of being faster, less robust encryption algorithm. Now, of course, there was pushback, and spec was actually ultimately rejected by the ISO as a standard. Nevertheless, with Google's backing, it made it into the 417 kernel. Google turns out, well, they've decided to go another way. Without their backing, out it goes. Now, there is a bit of confusion here, isn't there? Because Google didn't necessarily have to use spec for its lower-end hardware version of Android. They could have used an alternative. Yeah, so they've actually ended up going with XChaCha, which is a descendant of the ChaCha algorithm already implemented in Chrome. And the construction they've chose to use, HPolyC, is faster than spec was and more secure. Which leads to some serious conspiracy bacon being fried up here, because if spec was technically inferior, why were they pushing so hard to include it in the kernel, if not because of pressure from three-letter agencies? Yeah, you do have to wonder, like, were the technical justifications, did they ever make sense? It also says some things, I think, about both the power Google has within the kernel community and just how it functions as a thriving open source back and forth discussion that we saw, you know, we saw put in, we saw it removed so quickly. And I guess we just steamroll ahead and move on with our lives. Well, when it was introduced, there was, of course, the option not to actually include it when you compile the kernel. And I suspect that a lot of people will have been doing that. Whereas now it looks like that's not going to be a problem for them. Although it did make it into 4.19, which is an LTS kernel. So I suppose those distro maintainers are going to have that difficult choice to make. Do they include it or not? I will say it does at least make me glad that instead of just adding a proprietary encryption method into the Android or into Play Store or something like that, you know, we do get to see all of this taking shape in the open source sphere on the mailing list, and then we get to blather about it here. Well, let's end with a fun or strange story, I suppose. And that's about the Kernel Maintainer Summit, which was scheduled to be in Canada, but now it's going to be in Scotland. So they've moved continents. Why? Well, because Linus got the date and location wrong and was going to be on holiday in Scotland. So yeah, let's just move over there. Wow. You know, they explored a bunch of options here, kind of in the scramble of, well, what are we going to do? Linus is a rather important maintainer. Option one, keep the summit in Vancouver and have it without Linus, or move the maintainer summit to Edinburgh with Linus. Strangely enough, Linus was totally okay missing it. He suggested option number one. But it was ultimately decided that he's too important. And that kind of tells you a lot, doesn't it, about, you know, he is the benevolent dictator or whatever, but he really is just the linchpin of this whole operation. He absolutely is. And just to make it clear for people if they're not familiar, the focus of the Maintainer Summit is really on process and development issues and not technical issues. There's also the, the Colonel Plumbers Conference. There's there's a number of other summits and conferences that happen that all of those other things get hashed out. So it might just be an extra trip to Scotland for those lucky few invited to the Maintainer Summit. Well, Scotland is absolutely delightful, so I'm sure they'll be pleased to fly all that way from the west coast of North America all the way there to uh, rainy Scotland. And it just seems very strange that this would happen, but um, that's how important he is. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the humility, and you know, I'm sure he's 
wanting to see them do this without him just as for own peace of mind sake. I'm sure I would be. But at the end of the day, we have the colonel we have, and we have the leader we have. It all just keeps ticking along and uh, have fun in Scotland, guys. Well, there are plenty of stories on this episode that we'll be following and reporting on in the future. And if you want to keep up to date on those, the best way is go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And you can support the whole network at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Signal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Wes Payne. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Bye.